much, Rodney. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, Rodney had asked if there's anything additional he should mention, and I didn't think of anything at the time, but I, maybe it would be helpful to you to know I'm also a lifelong Cincinnati Reds fan, and so maybe that will uh, endear me to you in some way as well. Uh, thankful to be here with you. Looking forward to the time together this morning as well this, as well as this evening. I do bring you greetings from Intercity Baptist Church, a sister ministry of yours. We're thankful for you and uh, excited to be here with you this morning. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer before we look at his word together. Father, we are, are grateful for the joy that has come to this world because of Jesus Christ coming to this earth. We thank you that we can now gather in his name and we can look at his word. And I pray that as we behold his glory, that we would be transformed into that same image this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. It is, unfortunately, election season once again, uh, which means uh, if you have ever uh, had any kind of interaction with any kind of political campaign, you've probably started receiving messages from different people. And maybe the first time this ever happened to you, you thought it was kind of interesting. You know, you open your email and it's, oh, it's the Speaker of the House, or, whoa, it's the Vice President who's emailing me. And pretty soon you realize it's not that person at all. Uh, it's someone else who maybe knows them in some capacity. They're writing on their behalf, and they're asking you to do something usually. I'm calling on you to act in some way. I'm, I'm asking you to, to behave in a certain way or to do something. And if the call actually came from that person, it might bear a little bit more weight with you. But the reality is, as a Christian, you've actually received a call from someone much more important. You've received a call from God himself. That's what I want to look at this morning, to consider the call that you've received from him and how you're to live in light of that. If you would take your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is this calling? Well, this calling is what Paul has been describing in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, we get a glimpse into what God the Father is doing in the world. In the very first chapter, we find Paul pointing to God's eternal plan. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 9. One nine, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That God has a grand purpose, and that grand purpose is to unite everything in the universe in Christ. This is a plan that he formed before the world began. It's a plan that he is currently putting in place, and it's a plan that will one day be consummated when Christ returns. And what is God the Father doing right now to accomplish this grand plan? And we find out some of that in chapter 2. Beginning of chapter 2 in verses 1 to 10 
we find a before and after picture. Now, you, maybe you've seen those before and after pictures before. On, on one side, you have this person who's kind of, you know, looks very sad. He's balding. He's overweight. He's not smiling. On the other side, you have this person who all of a sudden now has a full head of hair, has ripped abs, and a smiling face. And if you had this product, it would work for you as well. Well, Paul, 2,000 years before anyone ever thought of that, pointed to a before and after picture. But the before picture is much worse than anything we could ever think of. Because the before picture we find is that people are actually spiritually dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And despite what you may have seen in popular movies, there is not dead and mostly dead. There's only dead. It doesn't get any worse than dead. It's a bleak picture. And what happens to these people who are dead in their spiritual sins? Well, we find in verse 4 something happens. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That God is taking dead people, spiritually dead people, and giving them spiritual life through Jesus Christ. And how does this happen? It doesn't happen because of what we do. It happens all because of grace. And you're familiar with these verses. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. We receive the benefits through our faith in him. (coughs) And then verse 10 reminds us that God created us in Christ Jesus for us to do good works. And so God is working out his plan to unite all things in Christ by taking spiritually dead people and giving them spiritual life. But he's doing something else. You might be fairly familiar with what we saw in verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, that before and after picture. But you might be less familiar with what you find beginning in verse 11. There's actually another before and after picture starting in verse 11. In verse 11, we find that God is not only taking spiritually dead people and giving them spiritual life, he's also taking groups of people who are separated from him and separated from each other and uniting them together in Christ. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. What, who's he talking about here? He's talking about two groups of people. Gentiles and Jews, those who are uncircumcised and those who are circumcised. And I think the point that he's saying you're called the uncircumcision is beginning to help us to see these weren't two groups that thought, hey, we're all together. These are two groups who said, we are not like each other. We're the circumcision, you're the uncircumcision. We're the Jews, you're the Gentiles. And part of what that meant was that the Gentiles, verse 12, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That they are separated from God. They don't know God. And therefore there's no hope. They're alienated from God's promises and his covenant relationship. And just like dead is a very grim picture, without God and without hope is a very grim picture. And what does God do? Well, God takes these people who are in enmity with each other and those who are far off. And what happens? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us, us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he removed the hostility, first of all, between men and God. He reconciled people who were enemies of God to God. And then secondly, he reconciled people who were enemies to each other to each other. He broke down the hostility. In this particular context, talking about Jews and Gentiles, he did so by removing the the wall of hostility, specifically the, the commandments of Moses. That in the temple, you actually had a sign that when you moved from the court of the Gentiles into the inner court, that basically said something like this, Gentile, if you go through this door, you are responsible for your own death. It's a little stronger than the beware of dog sign, right? Jews and Gentiles did not get along. Jews would get up in the morning and thank God that they were not Gentiles. Jews wanted nothing to do with Gentiles. They would not eat with Gentiles. They would not touch them. And as you can imagine, Gentiles often responded in kind. They despised Jews. They looked down on Jews. And yet, God brought these two people, two kinds of people who hated each other together into one body. Verse 17, verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And why is he doing this? Well, chapter 3 tells us in part why he is doing this. Look at verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is this mystery? It's something that that perhaps there were hints at in the Old Testament, but it was not clear. It was not clear until we get to the New Testament what God's ultimate plan was going to be for the Gentiles. And here is his plan. Verse 9. Sorry. uh, His plan is to do this, to, to bring Jews and Gentiles together. Why? Verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you open up social media, you look at Apple News or Yahoo News or something like that, you're unlikely to see the headline, Calvary Baptist Church Gathers Worships Jesus Christ. Probably not going to show up there. Because in many ways, what we're doing now seems insignificant to our world. But right now, God is demonstrating something to the angelic realm, to principalities and powers, that angels are watching this church gather to worship Jesus Christ, and they are saying, isn't our God glorious? Isn't he wise? Isn't he majestic? Why? Because they know you. They know you are people who were spiritually dead and that you had nothing to offer God and yet in his grace and in his mercy, he gave you spiritual life. He knows that you are people who outside of this church might have nothing to do with each other might on a human level even be enemies with one another. And yet, you are now 
brothers and sisters gathered together, united in worshiping Jesus Christ. And angels cannot understand from experience what redemption is. There is no salvation for angels. Yet they stand and marvel at the salvation God has given to his people. And so God has called you to this calling. It is a high calling. You are a part of God's church to bring him glory. And so in, back in chapter four and verse one, he now gives this command. You are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk simply means live your life. As you go about your day-to-day activities and all that you're doing, your life is to be worthy of this calling. And what does that mean? Well, really, the idea of worthy is to mean that it, it's, it's of the same weight. It matches up. If it were to be a scale, God's calling would be on this side and your life would be on this side and they would even out. Or if this was a math equation, it would be an equal sign between the two. Not God's calling is greater than your life, but God's calling is equal to the life that you're living, the way in which you live. And so what does a life that matches up with his incredibly high calling look like? Don't look at your Bibles right now. What might you think Paul would say immediately after this? I want your life to be worthy of my calling. What might he say? We might think, well, maybe he'll say, don't sin. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't be angry with each other. Don't commit adultery. Or maybe he would say things like, be kind to each other and forgive each other. And husbands, love your wives, and wives, submit to your husbands. And parents, love and teach your children, and children, obey your parents. And he is going to say all of those things, but that's not where he starts. Where does he start? Well, look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And verse 3 is really the command. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When Paul says, I want your life to match up with this incredibly high calling that God has given you, he says, and the first thing you need to make sure you do is to maintain unity within the church. And how are you to do that? Well, he gives instructions about the attitude you're to have in verse two. But before we really delve into that, maybe it might be helpful to stop and think for a minute. Well, why does Paul need to give us this command? In in chapter two and three, he's already said God's done this, right? God's broken down the wall of hostility. God's put people into this church. And so why do we need to focus on unity? And I think one of the answers is because we sometimes think of the church like we think of exercise. We're coming up to the end of the year, and usually as you head into a new year, what do you do? Well, you make New Year's resolutions. And what's one of the resolutions? I'm going to work out more. Because if we took a poll and we said, how many of you think exercise is a bad thing? No one would say that, right? Is exercise good? Exercise is great. 
Gives you more energy, helps you to lose weight. Exercise is a good thing. All right, so tomorrow morning, let's get up and run. Well, you know, my knees are a little sore right now. All right, well, let's hit the gym. Well, I mean, my back's a little rough, and I've got a lot of things to do. And, and, and what, what tends to happen is exercise is great in theory, right? But in practice, sometimes it's actually not quite as appealing. And when we read through Ephesians 1 to 3, and we hear God describing what the church is like, we think, this is incredible. The church is people who are spiritually dead and they're now spiritually alive and they're people who are at hostility with each other and now they're united together with God and they're doing this to bring glory to God. God's church is awesome. Well, who's God's church? It's the person right next to you and behind you on the other side of this auditorium. You say, well, they don't seem quite as cool as it seems like the first three chapters would make it to be. I'm not even sure I like all these people here. And so we can think of the church as an idea or a concept and fail to realize this is the church. And so if we want to walk worthy of our calling, (coughs) we've got to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And how do we do that? We do it first of all with certain attitudes. And those attitudes are found in verse 2, with all Humility. My favorite definition of humility is having a low opinion of your own opinion. And, and humility was not something that was honored in, in this day when Paul's writing. In fact, in some ways, it could be an insult if you called someone humble or lowly. And yet in our day, it's not that much different. That even, even people who begin their post online by saying humbled immediately talk about how great they are. They want to say humbled because they want in some ways not to emphasize they're actually being very proud. But we live in a culture that emphasizes you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to look out for yourself. You've got to be concerned with your needs and your wants. You've got to take time for yourself because no one else is concerned about you. And so you've got to be worried about you. And if we're not careful, we begin to take that same mindset within the church. We begin to think, you know what? Who I am really matters. And what I think really matters. This is what I'd like to see happen in the church. And why isn't it happening? Because I would like to see this happen. And I don't like what's happening there. And what's happening at that point in time is we're having a high opinion of our own opinion. You say, well, this is what I want to see happen. You say, who cares? Who cares? Why does it matter what you want? Are you significant? Is this church about you? Is this church about your wants and your needs and your desires? That's not humility. That's pride. Humility says, you know what, this is what I want, but I mean, that doesn't really matter. This is what I'd like to see, but that's my opinion, and my opinion doesn't really matter. We need to have humility if we're going to have unity. Secondly, we need gentleness. Gentleness is another word that was looked down upon in Paul's day. In some ways, it's looked down upon in our day. Uh, You might have a translation that that says meekness, because that's really the the, same word translated different ways in different translations. 
And maybe you've heard this before, but, but meekness is not weakness, right? Meekness or gentleness is actually strength that is controlled. It's a word that's used to talk about horses that have been trained so that they can actually go into battle. You think about a horse, you think this is a powerful creature. And this is a creature that could easily hurt people. And it's strong enough that it's difficult for us to control it until it's broken. Until it's submissive. Until now it's under control and that strength can be used for good ends. Or maybe think about it this way. Think about a dog. Not a tiny dog, but a real dog. A dog that if trained well can both play with the children in your family and fight off intruders. Because it's using the right amount of strength for what it needs to use. And that's really what gentleness is getting at. As we interact with others, we do so in a manner that doesn't crush those who are weak or doesn't deal gently with those who need a firmer hand, but uses the right amount of strength so that those who need care and help are helped. We need gentleness. And third, we need patience. Long-tempered or long-fused. And maybe you know someone, maybe you think this yourself, I've just got a short fuse. Which means something happens and it's not too long before I blow up. And when you have those kinds of people within a church, what do you not have? Unity. And instead, we need to be patient. We need to be long-suffering. We need to say, things don't always happen on my timetable. And again, our culture pushes back against this because we want everything instant. We're upset if it takes two days to get something worded online delivered to us. I ordered this thing from China. Why isn't it here the next day? Why do I actually have to wait in line for something? Why can't I just tap something and then food just comes to my door? We don't want to wait for anything. We don't want slow cookers anymore. We want instant pots. We want things to be fast and quick, but the Christian life does not work that way. In your own life, you do not grow instantly. It takes a long time for the Lord to work in your life so that you're no longer living in sin. You're no longer doing the kinds of things that God wants you just to stop doing. And if that's true for your life, you know what, that's also true for every other person in this church. And sometimes we're willing to be patient with ourselves and not with others. Why don't they just get it together? Why can't they see? Why can't they change? The answer is, well, they can, but give them time. Be patient. And that's related then to the necessary action we find at the end of verse 2. Bearing with one another in love. Tolerating. Putting up with one another. And, and this really implies we're not always going to get along. That if you were to say, hey, Ben, we'd love to have, take you out for dinner somewhere and we're going to go to a steakhouse so you can get some steak, I wouldn't say, well, I guess I could tolerate that. I'd say, that sounds great because I love steak. If you really love something, you don't bear with it, you don't put up with it, you, tolerate, you, you, you enjoy it. But in the church, you're not always going to have that. 
There are going to be people who rub you the wrong way. There are going to be people who wrong you. There are going to be people who sin against you. What do you have to do? You've got to bear with them. You've got to put up with them. You've got to tolerate them. And not just a begrudging one, but because you love them. This is what marriage is really like. In the picture of marriage, when you go into marriage, you're thinking, this is going to be great. We're never going to fight. Nothing ever, nothing ever going to be wrong. And then you get into marriage, and you, pretty soon you realize, you know what? I'm far from perfect. And my wife has to put up with a lot of things. And I, to a much lesser degree, but still occasionally, have to put up with my wife. Because that's what happens with sinful people. And that's what the church is filled with. And so we learn to bear with one another in love. We don't hold a record of offenses. But instead, we're willing to tolerate and when you do all of that, so that, verse 3, we can be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think it's important to note, we're not called to create the unity. It's already there. God made the unity. That's what we saw in, verses, in chapters 1 to 3. God made this unity. What do we have to do? We have to keep it. We have to maintain it. And why don't we maintain it? Why are there churches in which there's disunity? Why do Christians have cliques? Why do Christians fight with each other? And the answer is in part because we don't have the kind of mindset that we talked about earlier. We're, we're proud people. We're impatient people. We're not, we're not long-suffering. We're not gentle. But I think this verse also points to two other reasons why sometimes we don't have unity in the church. And the first is the kind of unity we try to build or maintain is not the unity of the Spirit. That we base our unity on something other than the unity that the Spirit created. That we have similar interests or similar hobbies or our kids all go to the same school or we all homeschool or we all have the same political opinions or we're all part of the same family or we all have the, the same kind of jobs. And we build these kinds of things and that's what we form our group around and that's what we base our unity on. Instead of basing it on what we share in common. That we were all spiritually dead people. We've made, made spiritually alive. That we were hostile to God and to each other and now he's put us at one within the church. Or as he goes on to say in this passage, there is one body, there's only one church there wasn't this conflict between Jews and Gentiles so that Paul would say, all right, that's fine. Let's have a Jew church. Let's have a Gentile church. No, no, there's only one church. There's only one body. There is only one spirit. We were all saved by the same spirit. There was no other spirit that gives us life. There's one hope. All believers have the same hope of living eternally with God in heaven. And we're all going to be in heaven together. We have that same hope. There's one Lord. Everyone who is a believer has confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules my life. He's in charge. I'm called to submit to him. There's only one faith. And here I think it's talking about what we actually say about Jesus. It's our expression of, of faith. It's our statement of faith. That everyone who's a Christian believes the same things about Jesus. They believe that he was the eternal son of God who became a man and lived a sinless life on this earth and died as a sacrificial substitute 
to pay for our sins. And he rose again bodily from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now intercedes for his people and from which one day he will come again and establish his reign of righteousness and justice on this earth and take his people home to be with himself. We all believe this. And there is one baptism. I think here the emphasis is on the spirit baptism. That it is Christ, the spirit, when he places people into the body of Christ. And that is pictured through water baptism. And all of us recognize the only reason we're in the church (coughs) is because the spirit put us into the church. We're all here because of his work, which means there's only one God and father of all who is in all, over all and through all and in all. All believers hold these truths together. And this is the only unity that can be maintained within the church. (coughs) If we try to have any other kind of unity, it will inevitably fail. This is what we all share in common. This is the unity of the Spirit. And if we are to maintain that unity, these are the kinds of things we must must focus on and build on. There's a second reason why we don't, have main, we don't maintain unity, and that's because we do not endeavor to do so. We are not eager to do so. We do not work at it. We just perhaps think that it's just going to happen. Or maybe we're so focused on our own circle of friends that we never stop to think, Is there someone in this body who feels as if they don't belong? Is there someone who's on the fringes? Is there someone who needs me to minister to them? Inevitably, you can't be best friends with everyone in this church. And that's not what this passage is about. And so you always are going to have some people that you're closer with in the church than others. What cannot happen, though, is you cannot have such a tight circle that no one else can ever be added in. And you cannot have such a tight circle that you're never looking outside of it. And perhaps, think about it this way. When it talks about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, I think the bond of peace is essentially saying peace is the bond. Peace is what binds us together. I think it's similar to what Paul says in Colossians where he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And there he's not saying, let a personal peace in your heart direct your decisions. He's saying, let the peace of Christ in the body guide your decision making. So as you are making decisions in the church, are you thinking, will this help maintain the unity of the spirit or will this disrupt the unity of the spirit? If I make a big deal of this, If I say this, if I act in this way, will it disrupt the unity? Will it weaken the bond of peace within the unity? And remember, we're not talking about generic unity. We're talking about the unity of the Spirit, the unity that God has put within the church. So as you're making decisions, you're asking, is this going to maintain that unity or is it going to weaken it? Why is this so important? Well, go back up to verse 1. Paul begins by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Why does he call himself a prisoner? Well, one of the reasons is because he is. He's in prison right now. 
Why does he bring it up here? Well, why is Paul in prison? If you look at the story of Acts, he's in prison because of this very issue. That he's in Jerusalem and people come up and say, this is the guy that's letting Gentiles come to God without becoming Jews. And Paul realized how significant this was and how central it was that he was willing to be put in prison to point to this mystery that Gentiles no longer have to be Jews to come to Jesus, to come to God. They can come directly through Jesus Christ. There is one God, one faith. There is no other way. It's only through Jesus. It's only through his spirit. And so Paul points out, I'm the prisoner because this really matters. This is really important. And so we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So let me encourage you to respond, first of all, by rejoicing at the goodness and graciousness of God. <clears throat> that as we looked at chapter 2, and we saw the description of those who were spiritually dead being made alive because of God's mercy and his grace. And which of those who were hostile and far away, and they've now been brought near through Jesus Christ, that that wasn't simply something where you said, yeah, yeah, I know that. But you realize, that's me. I was spiritually dead. I had no hope. I was without God. I was a stranger to the covenants and the promises. God made me alive. God brought me near. And now I have hope. Now I know God. And it's not because of me. Part of our problem is we get proud because we tend to think, well, I'm here because of who I am. You're not saved because you're smart. God didn't look down at you and say, boy, if I could get this guy in the church, that'd be great. If I could just get her in, that would really be something for me. No. It's only because God graciously called you. It's only because God mercifully gave you life. So let's rejoice at his goodness and his grace. And secondly, let's recognize the significance of what God is doing in and through the church that God is working out his eternal plan. And how is he doing it right now? In and through the church. And so if you are someone who's been given life through God, if you're someone who's been brought near to God, now you're someone who hopefully should be saying, I want to honor God and give him glory. I want to be a part of his plan. And where is that centrally located? Within the church. This is at the center of what God is doing in the world today. And because so often we can think church is me coming to something one time a week, we can begin to think everything else that's happening in this world is more significant. Yes, our gathering each week is, is central, but it's more than that. It's all that we're doing in and through the church. 
It's supporting missionaries who are going out to the world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's ministering to one another. It's praying. It's gathering together to meet the needs. All of these things are central to what God is doing in this world, which means our work in the church has eternal significance. One of the saddest one of the saddest trends in our day is families demonstrating that they put more significance in things like sports than they do in what God is doing in the church. Or, or do sports matter? Yeah, somewhat. Is it good to learn how to, to play baseball or soccer or to learn teamwork? Yeah, that's, that's all very good. But why would you ever make that a priority over this? Does your work matter? Yeah, your, your work matters. You should do it for the Lord. You should do it heartily. You should just honor him. But why would you ever allow your work to become a bigger priority than the church? What's happening here has eternal significance. This is how God is primarily working to bring himself glory in the world today. And so we need to be committed to his church. And remember, being committed to his church doesn't mean the concept of Calvary Baptist in Finley. It means being committed to the very people right here. So let me ask you, as you think about your life, can you say there are individuals in this congregation that I am investing in, that I am pouring my life into? And if you cannot think of individuals that you're, that you're doing that with, then I would say, are you really committed to God's church? Because being committed doesn't mean coming, sitting, and giving money. Yes, that's a part of it. But it means speaking to one another in love. It means ministering to one another. It means investing in one another. It means bearing with one another in love. It means having an attitude of humility and it means being committed to unity. And so, again, I ask, is there anyone that you can think of in this church that you think, they seem like they're on the fringes. They seem like they're not really connected. And what are you going to do about that? Or I know there's tensions right now within the body. What are you going to do to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? How are you going to be eager to maintain it, to work hard at doing it? Why? Because you care about God's glory. That God is seeking glory through his church. And you want to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you that you've placed us into your body. We thank you for the unity that you have made. And I pray, Lord, that we would seek to live lives that are worthy of this calling. 
and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace so that you might be glorified as you are working to unite all things in Christ to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.